another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went you Hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of Survival you Podcast As always, I'm in view of the changing world really The changing times And the things we can all do to live a better life If times get tough or even if they don't dictate it from the home office, and that's going to happen pretty much uh, the regular from now on going forward. We have reached the new year. It's the 4th of January, but for me it's the first day of really um, doing a survival podcast full-time. And uh, I'm going to start out with something that's a little bit of a downer. I don't know if it's a huge downer because we all reach this point in our lives um, where it's time for us to cross on to whatever the next journey is for us. Um, and this is not a person that I knew personally, but this is a person that had a very big impact personally on my life. And I'm going to dedicate today's show to him. Because so much of what I've been able to bring to you guys as far as advice and philosophy and the way to look at life and making the Survival Podcast about more than growing your own food, storing your own food, food and putting solar panels on, on, on your roof. How, how to make those things encompass a broader thing uh, that changes the way you view life and improves the quality of your life and lets us fulfill the show creed of living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And that person, I think I've mentioned one other time on this show, his name was James Cavanaugh, and he was an amazing poet that wrote a number of, of really amazing books. Uh, Dr. Wayne Dreyer referred to him as America's Poet Laureate. Uh, Larry King referred to James Cavanaugh as the greatest poet America has ever known. Um, I don't know if he's the greatest poet America has ever known, but he's the poet that's had the biggest impact on my life. And I'm not really that big into reading poetry. It's not really the thing that I spend a lot of time doing, but there are certain people that speak to you with words, be they in song, poetry, or just literary uh, expression. And they reach part of you that's intrinsic to who you are. And those messages can help bring you kind of to a new level. Well, I got an email on January 1st from Robert Cavanaugh, who was James's nephew, who I've exchanged a few emails with because of a webpage I have up with some of James's work on it. And it said, on December 29, 2009, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, after a long Ill- illness, uh, James Cavanaugh passed, uh, passed away. Uh, an Irish wake will be held celebrating his life on January 3rd. That was yesterday. And if you'd like more information, uh, here's how to contact me. Uh, so... We'll get into the regular part of the show. Today's going to be a feedback show in just a second. We'll do the housekeeping. But I'd like to open today's show with a, a little bit of James Cavanaugh's writing. And then I'm going to close today with another piece of Mr. Cavanaugh's writing. And again, I want to remind you how much of, uh, how much of this guy's writing has impacted my life. And I discovered James Cavanaugh's writing at uh, 21 years of age, fresh out of the military, and trying to figure out what to do with my life. Uh, one of my favorite books by him, there's a book called Too Gentle to Live Among Wolves. I uh, recommend you add it to your bookshelf. It's a, it's a great philosophy of life uh, disguised as a few simple poems. And this is the dedication from that book, and this is what I think I've read on the air before. But this is the spirit in which the survival podcast has been done uh, every day since its inception. To a cat named Ralph, who makes me laugh and feel loved, and a tired old man who makes me cry and feel helpless, but especially to those who could hear the honking of geese above the sound of traffic, who could hear the weeping of boys above the sound of mortars, who refused to take life as it is because it wasn't always. 
And folks, I think I've said this before as well. My cat's name is Ralph. Um, when I say I was influenced by this person, I mean it. And that is the spirit of the Survival Podcast. We do these things, and we prepare for the worst, and we try to live to our best. Because we're a group of people who have looked around and realized that with all the wonders that modern society and technology have brought, they've brought a lot of horrors as well. And that we know there's a room for balance. And we could take the philosophies that our grandparents held dear and add to them these technologies. Maybe we could get somewhere. But a life built on debt, a life built on destroying our planet, a life built on creating our own catastrophes and becoming self-fulfilling prophets is not the way that it's supposed to be. In other words, we've learned that we do not have to accept things the way they are because they weren't always this way. And with that, let's go ahead and get into today's housekeeping so we can get into today's show. But check out Mr. Kavanaugh. Sorry to make today's intro long, but I wanted to share this guy's work with you because of how much it actually has impacted your life without your knowledge. Because I have to honestly tell you, at at the age of 21, had I not run into the writings of James Kavanaugh, I think my life would have taken an entirely different course. So let's start out as we usually do with today's uh, sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one, Solutions from Science and their Survival Seed Bank. Uh, Again, I want to remind you what the Survival Seed Bank is really all about. This is not a collection of seeds for you to plant this spring. Not that you couldn't do it, but that's not how the product is intended to be used. These are seeds that are heirloom and reproducible. Uh, They're sealed with uh, a special technology that gives them a shelf life of 20 years, packed into an indestructible container, which, as some people have noted, amounts to a piece of PVC pipe. That's pretty indestructible stuff. Uh, and sent to you and designed to be put away long-term. The uh, the bank itself can be buried in the ground. It can be placed into a long-term storage facility. It is designed to ensure that you have viable seed available to you uh, in a long-term emergency. So I really recommend you check this product out and think about adding one to your preparedness arsenal. Um, so, uh, sponsor of the day number two today is TeaPartySilver.org, which is soon to be SilverAndGoldShop.com. Uh, Mary Beth Maidmont's been very successful with Tea Party Silvers, really worked hard, and has gone in on a little mining operation with some folks, and is going to be soon offering gold out of her own mine uh, in quite a few different forms. It's uh, pretty cool to see a small business person in this day and age make something like that work. Uh, obviously, I'm impressed, and... Uh, it's motivating to me to see somebody else be successful like that. So that's what's going on there. And how does she get there? By providing really good quality stuff. That's how. By providing excellent quality coins at an excellent price with excellent service. So I recommend that you check out TeaPartySilver.org. And there's been some confusion with some of the people's domain names because, let's face it, domain names are a rare commodity today. It's hard to get a short, concise domain name, especially that ends with .com. So remember, you'll always find our sponsors easily if you go to the survivalpodcast.com first and click on our sponsors' links in the right-hand margin. With that, let's go ahead and knock out the rest of the housekeeping. I'll try to knock it out fast for you because we are of our unusual intro today. Uh, so first, join the forum, get involved. Number two, check out the gear shop, cool stuff coming, more new cool stuff coming in 2009. Get your challenge coin. If I meet you at an event, I'm going to whip out a challenge coin. We're going to figure out what that means in the future. We're going to vote on it in the forum. But there's going to be some some cost for meeting a TSP or with a challenge coin and not having the ability to match the challenge. Uh, so get your challenge coins. Um, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, you're going to get exclusive content available only to members, including here's two new ones. 
that I'll be adding. It'll probably be today that I'll get these in the MSB, if not tomorrow. We're upgrading the MSB to a new software platform. Some of you guys have had some problems with login information getting deleted or lost, and you try to get in, you can't get in, and I have to set you back up, uh, that type of thing, and we're going to fix that. Uh, so with the upgrade, I'm not sure exactly when I'll get this new content in there. Um, but here's the two new deals that I'm going to have for you. Uh, there's a website called Self-Sufficient Life, and it's like self-sufficient-life.com. Uh, that has a huge assortment of really good ebooks. I've read two of them now. And one is called 10 Acres Enough. And it's about how you can create a self-sufficient life on 10 acres, uh, which I believe you can do even less. But I think this book's a great resource for that. They're all e-publications. That means you buy it, you download it, you have it on your computer like a PDF. Um, I talked to the owner, Gina, of that site, and she has issued uh, a special page. And again, this will be in the MSB later this week, uh, where you can buy any of her publications at 50% off. So like the 10 acres enough I think was $11. So I got it for 550. So that's getting added. The other thing that's getting added to the MSB this week is I finally cut the deal with Backwoods Home Magazine and here's the deal they're going to make. Order a subscription to Backwoods Home Magazine at the regular price and you get uh one of two books completely free. Uh the first book that you'll have an opportunity to get is called Can America Be Saved from Stupid People? by Dave Duffy, who is the, uh, I guess, the editor-in-chief publisher of Backwoods Home Magazine. Uh, and the other one is really an interesting read. It's called The Coming American Dictatorship, Parts 1 through uh, 11 by John Silvera. So you'll be able to get either one of those two books. They're both worth 15 bucks or more, something like that, for free. And there's another book that they have. And I can't promise you yet, but I'm going to go back on Dave today and say, can we add that third book as one of the, make it one of three choices? I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't want you clamoring for it if they say no. But those have been added to the MSV uh, in the past four days. So those are the types of things that are available to MSV members. So when I say you get a good return of your investment, I mean it. So with that, let's go ahead and get into today's show. I have a wide variety of topics to talk about today. Questions, feedback, information from the listeners. So here we go. Here's the first one. Okay, I can't find the actual email that asked me this question, but um, I did put it aside somewhere because I wanted to use it today because of a mistake that I made on Thursday. On Thursday, I mentioned the Appleseed Project, and I said that I saw the Appleseed Project as not being so much of a how-to-hunt-with-a-rifle project, uh, but more of a somewhat militant-style uh, training, uh, somewhat militia-style training. I got an email from one of the individuals that's, that's, uh, that does a lot of work with Appleseed and the uh, Revolutionary War Veterans Foundation, he was not happy with me. He said that he thought I was doing more harm than good to Appleseed with my mis- ac- uh, mischaracterization of the uh, project, that they were in no way connected to anything like a militia. They weren't part of a militia. Uh, they were there to treat, treat rifle craft. And I emailed him back and said, I'm sorry. I said, the only thing I know of Appleseed thus far is what I've seen on your website and a few YouTube videos. And and that's the impression I got. And um, if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I'll retract it. So here's an official retraction. The Appleseed is not a militia-style training in any way, shape, or form. And I didn't really mean it that way. But I'll answer the rest of that along with the question I got. Basically, I got a question from somebody, and it was, have you ever been to an Appleseed shoot? Uh, a lot of your talk about being a rifleman and your new project of mastering the 22 rifle, which is, if you guys want to learn more about that, you can go to masterrifleman.com and check that project out, uh, sounds very, very similar to what um, 
Appleseed Project talks about and teaches? And the answer is no, I have not. I've never been to an Appleseed shoot. I want to go. It's one of those things. I've been invited to several at no cost. I just have not had the time to go uh, at those specific dates that have been offered to me. Uh, I pretty much have an open invitation from several shoot masters, and I'd love to get there. I'd love to go at some point. I'm going to make it one of my uh, additional goals for 2010 to go to an Appleseed shoot so I don't have this confusion. But here's the couple observations I have about that question. Number one, the reason that the things that I talk about as fundamentals of rifle, uh, rifle marksmanship and rifle uh, craft uh, sound so much like the things that the Appleseed Project obviously discusses, teaches, and trains people to is because they come from the same place. The rifle craft that I know was taught to me by family members, two grandfathers, a great uncle, an uncle, and a father who all grew up hunting in the Pennsylvania woods and were taught by their uh, prior uh, generations. And that's exactly what they're teaching. Now, let me tell you why I feel a little bit, when I, when I look at their website, the first thing I hear is the loud beat of the Revolutionary War drum. It's completely consistent with American, you know, revolutionary uh, 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 theme that the entire thing is based on. Um but I also see a guy, one of the first pictures I see is a guy with an AK-47 with a bayonet. Um, all, almost all of the shooting that I see is done from the prone position. I do see some shooting being done from the seated position. Um, but just the whole look and feel of the site made me feel that way. So obviously I was wrong, but if, if Appleseed wants to project an image that's more about the craft of the rifle uh, to be used with sporting and things like that, then... They need to change some things about the public perception that somebody would get, because I think that anybody would get that perception. Now, let me say my other side of this. I don't think they should. I think it's fine exactly the way it is. I just think that no matter what you do, if you make firearms a major contingent of it, the uninformed are going to see it that way anyway, so all you can do is be who you are. They're really about preserving the history uh, of America, all the way back to the time of the American Revolution. And in that way, I do think that any training with a firearm is militia-oriented and not in the way that the term has been perverted and twisted and changed by modern society. The founders believed that every single man, every person that could pick up a rifle and point it in the right direction and pull the trigger was part of the militia. That is why the Second Amendment decries a did a well-regulated militia, sorry, I had a little stammer there, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And a, a lot of people have tried to make that to mean that, well, re- well-regulated militia is about, well, that's a state militia, that's a National Guard. They didn't have a National Guard. Okay? A militia was men and women everywhere, honestly. Women had a supporting role at the time. Today, I believe that it's all of us that were more open-minded than that. And they were all the men that went out and fed themselves every day with their rifle. And if they were called on to defend their nation, they showed up. And that, to me, is what Appleseed is preserving. So I wouldn't even duck away from it. I do understand the desire to distance yourself from the people that we see on YouTube wearing a black hood that won't reveal their identity. I understand that perfectly. And to be fair to them, that's not what I meant 
when I said that their training is somewhat militant-like. That's not what I meant at all. What I meant is it is, is done at shooting at stationary targets at fixed distances, learning windage and things, and there's, there's a limitation to what that can teach you. I think it's extremely valuable. I'm not putting it down in any way, shape, or form. I'm just saying there's a difference between doing that and being able to go and take a shot um, at a squirrel at 75 yards in uh, thick woods uh, where you're trying to hit a target the size of a golf ball moving through timber uh, while taking a rest against the side of a tree. Now, the guy that, that emailed me back that was upset with me, we're cool now, but what he said is the guy that does that type of thing is the guy that's most likely to qualify on the first round at an apple seed shoot and meet the qualification. I completely agree. So, no, I haven't been there. No, my philosophy of, uh, of, of rifle craft and shooting and marksmanship and American history is not really influenced by apple seed. They're just common because they come from the same root. So uh, that was a question. Hopefully that's helped a lot of people understand a little bit more about American history, and hopefully I've made things right with the Appleseed Project. Before I close on that topic, I'd like to encourage you to check out Appleseed's website. Uh, it is at appleseedinfo.org, and it is run by the Revolutionary War Veterans Association. Check it out. See what it's about. And if you can get to a shoot near you, do it. I think uh, everybody in this country should learn to be a master of rifle craft, and I think they can do a lot to help you get there. Next question comes to me from a uh, person we'll just call Fernando. I only give first names unless I'm told otherwise. Fernando says, Jack, have you ever heard of Dmitry Orlov? He wrote a book called Reinventing the Collapse. It's a basic premise is that the U.S. is going to collapse the way that the USSR did. Um, he gave best practices presentation, surviving the collapse. There's a link to presentation, which to be fair, I have not watched. I did not agree with all he said, but I found it provocative. Uh, I might make an interesting topic for a part or one of all your podcasts. I think it's a great topic. I think maybe one day we'll do a what if the U.S. broke up into exactly what Dmitry Orlov says it will into the uh, different segments and what would it be like and what would be the hardships. And if we split the country into these regions, which, which, which regions would have to cooperate with each other because of deficits in uh, materials and uh, things that are necessary for life. In other words, if you look at um, up until recently, anyway, the greatest agricultural production was split between the Midwest and the West Coast, and now it's really the Midwest because the West Coast is in massive drought problems because of their fish issue, and the, the people that don't want to kill the Delta smelt by turning the pumps on and irrigating the crops, would maybe they go ahead and turn that on, or would they, they, would they vastly turn toward their socialist utopia? Let me say, I don't think that Mr. Orlov is correct. I don't think that the United States will break up this way. I don't think that it's impossible, though. And to those that think this is an impossible scenario, and let me explain the scenario just a little bit deeper. I believe it's seven regions that Mr. Orlov says that eventually the United States will will uh, divide into. It will cease to be one nation, and they will split up uh, in an act of, I guess you would call it mutual secession, and uh, do a lot like the uh, Soviet Union did uh, as it fell apart. Uh, in the uh, early 90s. Now, here's why I think this is not something that's not uh, an impossible scenario to occur. If you would have told anyone in 1985, the Soviet Union, the second most powerful, or, you know, actually in some ways maybe the most powerful nation in the world, they may have been definitely in certain ways more powerful than we were, um, would in less than a decade 
dissolve into a group of, of uh, city-states and then from there break down and, and go back to its component parts. And we would not have the USSR anymore. We'd have Russia and, and all these little sister nations out there, each running independently. People would have said, you're crazy. People said you would have said, you are out of your mind. That ain't going to happen, not without military conflict or something like that. And it did. So if it can happen there, it can happen here. Now, I talked to one of my friends at work uh, about this, and his response was, it's different. In the United States, we all have a common language, common culture, common this, common that. In the Soviet Union, you had Ukrainians, you had Georgians, you, you know, you had Lithuanians, uh, and these people were very nationalistic in their fervor uh, on some level, and you had even individual languages. There's a, with my Ukrainian heritage, I can tell you, there's a Ukrainian language that is sufficiently different from Russian uh, to be its own independent language, its own independent tongue. It's not, it's not different in the way English is spoken in uh, South Texas versus New York City. It's much more different than that. Um, so that was his point, that that common bond would keep us together. But I'll tell you what, there is a decided differential in the way that people want to take this country forward in different parts of uh, uh, the United States. And one of Mr. Orlov's things is, I guess self-serving, he thinks Alaska will go back and side up with Russia. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Good luck uh, getting the people of Alaska, Mr. Orlov, to uh, to 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 go into uh, you know Russian belief systems of you know being disarmed. I, I think that's the last place in the world I'd like to go try to take somebody's uh, weapons away is out in the uh, the terrain of, of Alaska. But you know Alaska is separated from the United States by Canada, and there's a certain divide there, and. Um, the West Coast thinks a lot differently than the Midwest, and the Midwest and the left coast think a lot differently than, than the Southwest. And there is a potential for that to happen. I don't think it would be all good, and I think it would be a lot of bad. I think there would be some good that would come from it, depending on where you lived. If you live in California, you're probably forming. I think it's more likely that California would uh, side up with Russia uh, in a new alliance system than, uh, than Alaska would. Because you're already further down that socialist uh, attempted false utopian road that can't exist. Um, so I don't know. I, I've heard of them. I wouldn't give this thing too much credence, but I also wouldn't ignore it. I would tell you that if it ever did happen before it did, we would have a lot more uh, rumblings and warning signs. People look at the Soviet Union and they think it happened overnight. It happened over um, over those 10 years, honestly. Uh, that I mentioned, it slowly unwound and fell apart, and basically the country went bankrupt. And that's the one thing I want you to understand about why it could happen here. We didn't break the Soviet Union up because we were so strong. The Soviet Union attempted to keep up with our strength and bankrupted themselves, and that dissolved their union. We're attempting to keep up with other things, and we're attempting to create falsehoods, and it is possible for this country to go bankrupt. And I think if our nation goes bankrupt, it would be very tempting for places like Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma, which with rich natural reserves, Alaska, uh, or states that have maybe not as many natural resources, but a very strong-willed small population that doesn't really need support from the federal government, like Montana, Wyoming, to break away into individual component parts. 
and then form some alliances. So maybe I'll do some research and we'll discuss that one day. What would it look like? How would, I, how would my vision differ from uh, Mr. Orlov's vision? And uh, what would happen and what would people have to do without and uh, what type of military conflicts might arise and what kind of strange bedfellows might be created. Interesting topic. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. Let's take another thing and talk about it. Here's one that's more of a statement, more of uh, some direct feedback from uh, Dark Winter uh, or Brian, depending on how you want to call him. And um, he has a pretty interesting story about what he's learned over the holidays. Hey, Jack, I had a comment for you. Over the holiday, we decimated our pantry. It was nice to have things on hand for all the cooking and baking, but we emptied out a lot of food. So yesterday, I did an inventory, and I had a few things to share with you. First, I have a family of four, two adults, one toddler, one child. When I mentioned the pantry, we had about 130,000 calories in the pantry. For four people at 2,000 calories a day, that is about 16 days of food. Before we started robbing the pantry, I had about 35 days worth of food available. And this got me thinking about food storage. We had 13 people in the house um, for Christmas, and I would have loved to have had more. But if there was an emergency at that time, we would have had four days of food. My storage went from two and a half weeks to four days instantly. We cannot rely on food storage for large emergencies. I don't think people realize how many loved ones they have to care for. In my personal example, I have a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a grandmother, a niece, a mother-in-law, a father-in-law, a sister-in-law, etc. There is no way I could turn my back on these people. They are family. Good for you, man. Good for you for saying that. They are blood. These people cared for me my entire life, and I would be less than human to turn them away. But when I add up all the people I love, I would have housed 17 people at 2,000 calories a day. We would run through 34,000 calories a day. In three days, which is a very plausible situation to have here in northeast Ohio with weather and power outages, we would burn up over 100,000 calories. There's no way I could store and rotate properly a one- to three-month supply of stored food for all of these people. That would be over a million calories a month. To put it visually, a 10-pound bag of rice is uh, two, about 2,000 calories. One month of food would be 50 bags of rice, 500 pounds of rice in a month. There is an absolute necessity to have permaculture, gardens, fish, and or animals. I am so glad that you started your series on wild edibles. And for those who ask, what are you going to do next to make a pie? They are ignorant. They are ignorant of the fact that food and food storage is very finite. So as I look to the new year, my resolution is to focus on permaculture. is my number one goal this year. I have started with three apples and four blackberry bushes. I thank you very much for these podcasts. Keep it up and have a great new year. Hey, Brian, thanks, man. And that's what I've been saying from the beginning. That's why you've heard me some of my very first uh, podcasts before I even really dug deep into the permaculture topic were things like Three Sisters Gardening, learning how to be sustainable without having chemicals and fertilizers, not just because of the organic you know, thing where you want to do it that way, but because you, if you have a major emergency, you can't rely on having those things available. And those things eventually strip the land and rape the land and destroy the land and make it not produce anymore. So, you know, it's amazing how people forget very simple concepts. There's an old story called the goose that lays the golden egg. And eventually they kill the goose to get the eggs out. Of course, there's no eggs in the goose. The goose produces an egg every day. By killing the goose, no more golden eggs. So by caring for the goose, you can have a golden egg every day and end up very, very wealthy. This is not about money. That fairy tale really teaches about taking care of the earth. 
The earth is the goose that lays the golden egg. And when we pour fertilizer on the soil, when we rape the land, when we don't care for the land, when we transform fertile land into fallow land, we're killing the goose and we don't get any more golden eggs. But unlike the goose that laid golden eggs, we're talking about real eggs here. Plants and the ability to support small-scale wildlife to provide ourselves with protein, milk, eggs, meat, things like that. When we kill that golden goose, we're killing ourselves. And that's what Brian has snapped to. And that's what I've been saying from the very beginning. I don't care how much food you have in your home. Storage is finite. And all it takes is something like this little occurrence to wake you up to how finite it really is. You can go out and buy $6,000 worth of Mountain House. Stack up your garage with it. You could have enough food then. I guess you would probably have enough food for about six months for a family of four. Close to it, barely. But if you took in a few, let's say you just took in four family members. Now it's three months. You take in four family members more, and now you're down to 90 days. You take in four family members more, what are we down to now? Three weeks? And that's with a major investment in long-term storage food. And you'll say, well, what could we do with our backyard? Could we produce enough food to feed that many people as well? No, probably not. You can produce enough food to extend it. You can produce enough food to augment the storage. In other words, if you really get serious, you can produce tons of things that you can store so that you add to your storage capacity, so that you can store more food than you ever thought you could. By using dehydration, which is a very simple technology, you can take things like uh, beans and other uh, vegetables and store them long term and make other components out of them. But the big thing you can do, it's difficult to, store, to spread survival philosophy. Initially, people don't want to think about the harsh reality that makes it required. It's easy to spread gardening and permaculture. If we spread gardening and permaculture, if we spread, hey, cut down that useless tree and plant a fruit tree, that bare patch over there, don't go put a crepe myrtle there. Let's go down to the, to the nursery together. I'll help you pick some things out. Let me show you how to mulch them, how to take care of them, how to get them through their first year, and after that, they'll take care of them. If we do that, and we start putting food in every backyard in America, we'll be less likely to have to take people in. And if we do, we'll be able to band together as communities and share what is available to get by. I watched a movie last night, I guess a documentary movie, I guess is the way you would call it, uh, for probably the third time I've watched it. And it, I can't remember what it's called, but it's basically a big comet hitting the Earth. And they show these people traveling across this vast wasteland of snow and ice to get to the Mediterranean where it's a little bit warmer. And they, they're surviving for months in these little bands and little communities. You know what they never said? How these people fed themselves, where they got food from. They have these experts on going, you know, the people that know how to hunt and gather, they're going to be the ones that, that are going to be the, the heads of society at that point. You know, we'll lose intellectual competencies, but that's going to be what's more important. The business manager becomes useless if he can't defend his people or put food on the table. But with the type of disaster they were talking about, there wouldn't be any food. That's where food needs to be stored. But that's the least likely disaster. But I think that's a misconception in that movie, even though it's not directly applicable to permaculture, that people have, that in one of these massive disasters, people will band together and sort things out. Well, folks, I have to explain something to you. The same reality that Brian learned about his pantry exists in every grocery store in America due to something called just-in-time inventory. One little tiny major disaster, one little tiny major disaster, if such a thing exists, that makes the people in your city or town panic will wipe the store shelves off 
within 48 to 72 hours. The food will be gone. And if nothing's bringing more, no more is going to show up. We have got to start feeding ourselves again. That's what Brian snapped to here. Thanks for sharing that with us, Brian. Let's go ahead and take another email. Let's go in a totally different direction. I'm, I'm, I have a ton of them here that have come in over the weekend and the holiday, and I might be doing a couple of these to get ready for my trip. Uh, I'm going to be gone from uh, from Thursday through uh, Monday uh, up to our bug out location. Uh, so I have a lot of these to work with. Here's one that's, that's way of a different topic to keep this uh, show variable. Um, comes from Joe. Joe says, I've been using 22 subsonic in my rifle for pest control and hunting on our 10 acres here in Michigan. I find them quiet and the report is low enough not to bother the neighbors and hearing protection is not required. I was hoping to use uh, my 22 auto pistol with this ammo as well, but it is not quiet like the rifles. Do you know why? My first thought was since it had a shorter barrel, it would even be less feet per second and therefore about the same noise level, but the crack is as loud as standard velocity ammunition. Any idea why? Looking forward to your 22 Rimfire ebook. Um, yeah, it's the shorter barrel. It's just acting in a different way than you expected. The, the subsonic part that keeps it quiet means that there's no sonic boom. The bullet does not break the sound barrier, so there's no secondary crack. That loud rifle, that's that sonic boom. So you have, with a, with a centerfire rifle, you'll usually hear a large boom, like that, right? And that secondary piece is that bullet breaking the sound barrier. And twenty two high velocity does the same thing. So you take it to a subsonic level, and all that's left is the sound of the discharge of the shell. Now we take that discharge of powder... And we spread it across a 22-inch heavy barrel of a rifle. And we end up with a very soft sound. A pew! You know, it's not really loud. It's a little bit louder than a, than a pellet gun, I guess. Subsonic out of most rifles. You go to shorts, 22 shorts, and you get even an even quieter um, uh, discharge. So now we go and we take this thing and we stick it in a pistol. And we fire it. And we expect, since you're going to get less feet per second, you're right about that, that it would be even quieter. Well, the thing with a sonic boom is either we have a sonic response or we don't. There's no degrees of it. right? Once we cross it, it's there. If we don't cross it, it's not there. So that's all that's left is the discharge of the weapon itself. Now, we take that same little charge of powder and we put it through a 6-inch or a 7-inch barrel uh, maybe a 5-inch barrel. I don't know what pistol you're shooting. Maybe it's a little compact. Maybe it's a 4-inch barrel. The shorter the barrel, the more powder is going to actually explode on the outside. That's a muzzle blast. And that's what you're hearing. That's that louder part of your discharge. That's why your subsonics in your pistols are going to be just as loud, probably as non-subsonics in your rifle, maybe even a little bit louder. So you get into a point where you're having to look at going to shorts, and it's still going to be a lot louder than you expect it to be, way louder than you expect it to be because of the same effect, or you have to go and spend the money and uh, uh, get a Class three silencer, or a suppressor is a better way to put this, and put that on there. So like one of the best pistols to do this with is the Sig Mosquito. And you shoot subsonics out of the Sig Mosquito with a suppressor, and it's really quiet. It's quieter than a CO2 pellet pistol. But that's another way to think about this. Think about the sound of firing an air rifle, not a piston-driven, loud, spring-driven piston rifle, but a typical, you know, little pump-up ten times air rifle, and how loud that is. And then compare it to a handgun that uses CO2 with compressed air, and how much louder that is. And you'll often find with pellet rifles, if you don't load them, 
and you shoot them with empty air, they're even louder because there's nothing to contain that air blast. It's the same effect. So that's why that is, there's not really a lot you can do uh, about it other than to switch uh, back to using a rifle for the quiet needs uh, or to go with some type of uh, suppressor. Here's a brief one. I just thought it was cool and wanted to share it with the audience. A guy named Mark. Mark says, episode 330 was phenomenal, and that's where I talked about starting, running, and operating your own business. It captured the essence of what I spent four years in college learning from uh, my BA in business administration, and a lot of what I had to learn through experience. I've made this podcast, quote, mandatory listening for the other attorneys in my law practice. Keep up the good work. Best regards, Mark. That's awesome. That's awesome because you know what that does? That that sends the preparedness message to a group of lawyers who probably wouldn't listen to it in any other way. And that's why sometimes I break off and I do topics that seem a little bit different than survivalism and preparedness. If you can reach people, and this is for you guys more than me, right? If you can reach people and demonstrate skill and competence in something that they have affinity with, they'll tend to gravitate toward you. And then they'll be more open to listening to the other things that you have to tell them. This doesn't work with powdered butt syndrome. And what's powdered butt syndrome? That's what Dave Ramsey calls it. And that is, um, your parents powdered your butt at one time. Generally, you're not going to be able to reach your parents very well with messages like this directly because you don't like to listen to people that tell you how to live your life after you've powdered their butt. But with most other people, if I take somebody fishing and I take them out on a lake that they've fished a bunch of times I've never really done well with, and I teach them how to read a graph and a sonar and a fish finder, and I teach them about the patterns of the fish, and I take them out over a, a sand gravel hump in late March, and we fish for white bass, and I say, here, take this thing, this little spoon, and drop it down at the bottom, reel it up till it's tight, and do this with your rod, and they catch 20 fish. Now I have credibility. If I give them advice on their business and they apply it, now I have credibility. It could be anything. It could be uh, a certain type of mulch that makes blueberries grow because it adds acid to the soil or anything like that. And it could be in any walk of life. It could be if you're a model rocket guy, a different type of engine. It, could, it doesn't matter. You get my point. When you reach out to people and you go into their world and you create affinity with them and demonstrate the, com- the commonalities that you already have together and the ability to improve what they're already doing, they tend to start asking you questions about life in general. And that will generally, sooner or later, lead to um, some sort of fear. And when a person exposes a fear to you, that's the time that you can really talk to them about being prepared. And usually it comes along with a news story. Ah, oh, this new flu, I'm worried about that. Well, we're not that worried about that. Why not? Because we have done the following. Why? Well, you just told me you, you know, you give them the laundry list. Well, you, that seems like a bit much. You just told me you're concerned about this. I've just told you I'm not concerned about this. So is it really overreacting? By the way, here's how those five things that we've done are making our life better, even if that never happens. And here's some of the other things that could go wrong that they're in place for. That's what I've been saying from the, from the beginning as well. You have to reach out to people in levels that they're comfortable with with you so hey uh mark thanks for that feedback it's kind of humbling honestly i appreciate it and uh keep on uh give the lawyers of the world a good name if you can mark i i really want to see more there's i've known some great lawyers and i've known some ambulance chasers uh i can tell you're the other kind and be an example to your own community of what a good lawyer is i'd, I'd like to see more of that
Here's another one. We'll go back into uh, kind of a firearm, sort of a firearms question. Uh, this comes from Chris, and Chris says, um, I'm just starting out reloading my own ammo, mainly because I found the fun of shooting pistol competitions. And I was looking up info and found several articles, YouTube videos on casting your own bullets and realized how truly easy and cheap it is. I know a lot of people already melt wheel weights down uh, for bullets, but I was thinking that someone like you that can shoot on their own property would be able to dig up used bullets or maybe go to a common area that shooters use in the uh, mountains and mine some lead. And then for plinking, uh, your, your, only, your only cost becomes primers and powder. I realize cast lead bullets won't guarantee a clean, fast kill when hunting like modern expanding bullets would. We're going to get to that in a second. However, if a person were to work uh, with their cast bullets and load until they found something that matched the ballistics of their hunting load, then even uh, practice would be cheap. Wondering about your thoughts and opinions, maybe share how easy it is with your listeners who might be under the impression that it was difficult or dangerous like I was. Keep up the good work. Thank you for waking up this grasshopper. All right, let's talk about a couple things there. One, uh, acquiring lead from the range. If I was going to want lead from a range, uh, I wouldn't really plan on digging stuff out of the ground very much. What I would do is I would look for a local pistol, rifle, indoor range. And I would ask specifically if they have an area where primarily what's fired is rim fires, and can I come after hours and pick up the bullets uh, off the ground? And many of them would say yes, you could go get them freely that way. Digging them out of the ground, you could do it. Uh, if you if you if you shot in the same place all the time, specifically, one thing you might want to consider do is having an area where you shoot all the time with your rim fires. Then you know you have pure lead. Why rim fire? Why twenty two? Because other than your own cast bullets, if you're casting bullets, you might shoot them in the same location. Most bullets that we buy today from the store uh, are jacketed. So that's kind of a problem if you're trying to separate the lead from the jacketing material. You could do it, but it's easier if you have pure lead. So that's why I would suggest doing it that way. Now, what I think would be interesting is if you had a place like that, you'd have a whole pile of lead in the ground, and if we ever had a shit at the fan, at least you have access to some lead. Probably easier to store it up. Wheel weights are a great way to do this. Wheel weight lead is very, very hard. Now, as far as not reliably killing big game, I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm dead serious. I'm not being a smartass. Have you seen many buffaloes lately? Let's say it again. Have you seen many buffalo lately? Well, what were the buffalo killed by the by the millions with? Lead bullets. Have you ever been to the cemetery in Gettysburg? It's humbling. It's humbling to stand on that ground and see men that died from both sides of that war and the number of them at the one battle. And they were all killed with lead. Lead kills. Now, there is a technique to make a solid lead bullet expand. Expand very well and do a very good job from a terminal ballistic standpoint. I'm going to give that to you now. You need two types of lead. One, you need um, a, a hard lead, a, a, uh, an alloy. And wheel, works, wheel weights work great for this. If you add a little what's called block tin to it, uh, it'll make it even harder, and there's already some there. Um, but block tin is a great addition to lead to make it extremely hard. A little bit makes it a little bit hard, and you're going to get greater casting results out of that. And a lot of it makes it super hard. You get a non-expanding slug. So let's say I go out and I make this slug out of wheel weights or wheel weights and or lead with block tin out, and I get this really hard bullet. Well, I get a solid bullet that's going to penetrate very, very well. So the way that I ensure a clean kill with that bullet as you go with large caliber, I shoot something like a 4570. 
If I put a 45 caliber hole through an animal, I don't need a lot of expansion to get the type of destruction that I need. It's going to be much more effective than a 30 caliber bullet uh, or even a 35 caliber bullet with the same type of performance. It doesn't mean that it won't work. You're talking about quick down kills. Now, if I want to make a solid lead bullet that expands, here's what I do. I need to make what's called a dipper that will measure a specific volume of lead that is roughly 30% of the total volume of lead, maybe 40%, somewhere between 30 and 40% of the total volume of lead that I would use to cast a single bullet. All right. Now, I melt two pots of lead. One pot of lead is pure lead, as soft as I can get it. No additional materials whatsoever. And I take my dipper of about 30 to 40% total volume, and I drop it into the uh, the bullet mold. And then I take another dipper with, you know, obviously measurements being far less important, and I just be, you know, immediately drop it on top of that soft lead. And, you know, I, 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 uh, I strike it off, just like I always do with a striker plate, and I pop that bullet out. And then what I end up with is a bullet with a soft nose and a solid base. And I get a bullet that will expand rapidly on impact, but still be driven through by its solid hardcore base. Is this anywhere near the technology of a Nosler partition bullet? No, but it works damn good, especially at more moderate velocities. Now, you don't want to take that bullet and put that into a 300 wind mag and max load that. This is more for your moderate velocities, 2,400 feet per second in that range. But you'll get extremely extremely uh, uh, beneficial performance. You might even use a, what's called a copper gas check on the back of that bullet, which is a little plate of copper that clips onto that bullet on the back side, and it's not really to act as a jacket. It's just to help any gases from getting around and scorching the sides of that bullet as it goes down the barrel. Do that, and you get some amazing performance. Now, here's the beauty of these. You only need these things to shoot a game. If you cast your bullets with soft lead, hard lead, doesn't matter what, Right for practice, they're going to fly the same. They're going to basically weigh the same. They're going to be shaped the same. You don't have to do anything any different. But a little handful of these will take you through season after season after season of hunting medium to large game. So there's something we can do beyond just harvesting lead to make lead-only bullets more useful and more analogous to what we're used to using uh, with modern firearms. Why is that important? And it should hit the fan. You may not be able to phone up Hornady and order a whole bunch of 150 grain SSTs for your 308. But you'll probably be able to find lead somewhere. And lead's cheap. And even if you don't regularly cast bullets, getting the material you need to do, learning the skill, and stockpiling a bunch of lead is a very low investment. And it is long-term insurance about your ability to deal with whatever situation may come our way. Okay, this email comes to us from a person named John. And what John says, Jack, see paragraph 19, Monsanto is bankrolling the UN's climate guru and his private organization out of which he is making a fortune. I wonder if they're using climate change to buy off their opposition. Yeah, you think? Uh, so he gives me this link, and I'll give you a link in today's show notes to this uh Article. Let me read you a few pieces, including paragraph 19 that John mentions. Um, no one in the world exercised more influence over the events leading up to the Copenhagen Conference on Global Warming than Dr. Rajenda 
Barchui, whatever his name. I'm going to call him Dr. Raja from now on. Uh, chairman of UN's International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and mastermind of his latest report in 2007. Although Dr. Rajo is often presented as a scientist, he was even once described by the BBC as the world's top climate scientist. As a former railway engineer with a PhD in economics, he has no qualifications on climate science at all. What has almost entirely escaped attention, however, is how Dr. Rajo has established an astonishing worldwide portfolio of business interests with bodies which have been investing billions of dollars in organizations dependent on the IPCC's policy recommendations. I want you to listen very, very carefully to my validation as I read the next paragraph when I told you the oil companies are not really against this cap and trade. They stand to make a fortune off of it. Listen to the next paragraph. These outfits include banks, oil and energy companies, and investment funds heavily involved in carbon trading and sustainable technologies, which together make up the fastest growing commodity market in the world, <laughs> estimated soon to be worth trillions of dollars a year. Let me pause from reading a second again. I said, this cap and tax is not about saving our planet. It's not about saving the environment. There's plenty of things that we need to do to save our planet. There are plenty of ways that we are polluting our planet. CO2 is not the way. The reason they're using CO2 is it doesn't really matter, and they can create the largest commodity ever in the history of the planet, a new fiat currency. Let me read that one portion to you again, which together make up the fastest growing commodity market in the world, estimated soon to be worth trillions of dollars a year. Now let's go on down to paragraph 19 and read what John wanted us to read. Reading it, I'm going to have to go ahead and start a little bit above that. So let me read you three paragraphs. Another project co-financed by our own Department of Energy, Food, and Rural Affairs and the German insurance firm Munich Ray is studying how India's insurance industry, including Tata, can benefit from exploiting the supposed risk of exposure to climate change. While, while Defreya and UK, UK taxpayers should fund a project to increase the profits of Indian insurance firms is not explained. Even odder is the role of Terry, T-E-R-I, uh, Washington-based North American offshoot, a non-profit organization of which Dr. Rajo is president. Conveniently sited on Pennsylvania Avenue, midway between the White House and the Capitol, this body, body unashamedly sets out its stall as a lobbying organization to sensitize, this is a quote, to sensitize decision makers in North America to developing countries' concerns about energy and the environment. Now this is the paragraph that John wanted us to read. Terry, hyphen N.A., is funded by a galaxy of official and corporate sponsors, including four branches of the U.N. bureaucracy, that means paid for by us through the U.N., four U.S. government agencies, again paid for by us, the taxpayers, oil giants since is, such, is, such as Amoco, two of the leading U.S. defense contractors, and here it is, Monsanto, the world's largest uh, genetically modified organism producer, the WWF, which is the environmentalist campaigning group which derives most of its funding from the EU, 
and two world leaders in the international carbon market between them managing more than $1 trillion worth of assets. So here at the heart of everything that we're told from the United Nations about how we have to act now, we have to act swiftly, that your tailpipe and its carbon is what's killing the planet, is a $1 trillion consortium that the guy who's making the statements and controlling the statements has a big piece of, and right in the center of it is Monsanto, which may be the most evil corporation known to man. The absolute enemy, the absolute enemy of every environmentalist on the planet. There's not a permaculturist out there that thinks Monsanto's a nice group of guys. There's not a Save the Whales person out there likes There's no one out there that really cares about our planet that likes Monsanto. All of them would call them evil. And here, right at the heart of the very thing that they're following, that they're making, their blood cry with, is Monsanto in a trillion dollar consortium. So I want you to read this whole article, and I want you to learn from it. And um, I'm going to have Bill Wilson from Midwest Permaculture on. his show. I'm going to do his show tomorrow. It will air Thursday while I'm away. We're not going to talk about global warming. We've talked about it a little bit off the air. I don't want it to be divisive when I bring somebody like this on. And he's not like one of these die in the die hard, you know, it's got to be my way or the highway type guys. He's open to possibly being, he's not even really researched it. But he said, I wonder why there's such divisiveness within the issue. I'm going to ask him to read this. And I'm going to tell him, I don't want to talk about it on the show. I don't want to debate. I want to bring him on to talk about permaculture. But I want people in this environmental world to understand that these people behind this thing are not your friend. And this is why it's divisive. Because it's a trap. It's a trick. It leads us into a very dark place where we create a new way to finance the evils of the world. And that's what it really is. A new way to finance the evils of the world perpetrated by government under the banner of environmentalism that doesn't do anything to solve the problem. Even if you believe, still believe, CO2 is the guilt, is the villain here, this tells you nothing is going to change because of cap and trade. I want you to read this article. I want you to understand its implications. And I want you to realize that I don't want you to turn away from environmental concerns because of it. This is why people say, why do you have to make a big deal out of this? Here's why. The entire environmental community is betting the farm on global warming. Everything that you hear from the environmentalists, put global warming, global warming, Al Gore is a god, okay? It is a lie. It is starting to fall apart. The first chinks in the armor have been broken. This is another big one. You won't hear this on the regular U.S. news anytime soon. Sooner or later, this is the type of thing is really going to get out. People are really going to start talking about it. When anybody digs deep into the global warming argument for CO2, it falls apart. Why is that important? Because I don't want the environmental movement set back 50 years. Let me make my case to you this way. If you believe in the CO2 theory... And there's a 90% chance you're right and only a 10% chance I'm, I'm right. You have a 10% chance of losing everything if you stay on this path. There are so many reasons to protect our earth, protect our environment, provide food for ourselves, stop the practices of modern agriculture that are creating deserts. So many real ones that are not debatable. The depletion of water is not a debatable thing. There is no debate there. No one's even having it. No one's even arguing that the water won't run out. 
No one can argue that we haven't taken fertile land and made it into fallow field that requires tons of chemicals every year just to produce the most basic crops. Nobody can argue that diversity has been lost. Nobody can, nobody can argue that we're headed down a road that eventually will lead to food shortages for the world as the population continues to grow and we have now reached a point of peak production capacity. None of those things can be argued. So why do we waste our time on carbon? Because, let me read it to you again, four branches of the UN bureaucracy, four U.S. government agencies, oil giants such as Amoco, two leading U.S. defense contractors, Monsanto, the world's largest GM producer, and the WWF have a consortium of finances totaling more than $1 trillion in assets that are bet on this thing going through, creating a new fiat currency. That's why it's divisive, because the people that know the truth won't shut up. Because the truth is too horrifying to shut up about. There's a lot of things that people eventually just give up on. The people that know the reality here and what it's really going to create will never be silent. And God bless them for it. Let's go on and maybe a little bit happier of a topic. I say it's happier. It's not exactly a fun dinner conversation, but maybe it is, depending on how you feel about it. The way I feel about it, maybe it is. Uh, this comes from... Uh, Kyle Christensen, who's actually one of our sponsors from Western Botanicals, he says, uh, Hey, Jack, question. What are your feelings about roadkill as food? Six weeks ago on a Sunday morning, a young buck was hit by a car right at the end of our driveway. It was very fresh and very dead. My neighbor works for Fish and Game, so I called him and asked what legalities of harvesting the deer. He said, Here in Utah, it is not illegal, but encouraged. Uh, and talked about much. He asked if it was fresh and if we need any help processing it. So my son and I hung it up in the garage, and now we've got some great venison in the freezer. Are there any guidelines that should be followed with roadkill? Thanks. Number one, good call. Glad you did it, and that's the way. Number two, please contact your state's fish and game department. There are different requirements for harvesting roadkill in different uh, states. I don't think it's technically illegal anywhere. I think it's encouraged everywhere because of the loss that it represents if it's just left. Right? Here are a few... Here, here's, here's an example, though, of a state's differential on it. In Pennsylvania, it is acceptable. When you find the deer, before touching the deer, doing anything to deer, you must call fish and game. Sometimes they will send an officer out to see you, sometimes they will t- give you permission to to, uh, to take the deer to your house, and they'll say to send something in the mail. Sometimes they say they'll, they'll have an officer come meet you at your house, and they'll give you specific instructions. If you get an okay over the phone to take that deer in Pennsylvania, this happened to me. Okay, you better write down the person's name and the time. You better get their full name and the time that you spoke to them. And then you take that deer home. Because what happened is, she said, we'll send, I've got you noted down, we'll send you a form in the mail, fill it out, send it back in, and you're good. So okay, fine, no problem. So um, I'm down in the cellar, and I'm butchering this deer that we picked up off the road. And I, I'm walking up out of my cellar. This is back where my dad used to live when I was a teenager. And I've got two shoulders, two bloody shoulders in my hand. One that needs to be tossed, because it was the side that took the impact. And the other one is good. And I've got blood up to my elbows, and I'm walking out of the, the cellar, out of the, the, the stairs that come up out of the ground, uh, out to the outside, uh, to walk around and, and, and hang these up in uh, the meat room. And there's a game warden standing there, and he says, do you guys have a deer here? Talk about being caught red-handed. I said, absolutely, and told him the whole story. He said, I don't have any record of this. I said, can I 
put this stuff down, wash my hands, and I'll and I'll give you the information. He said, sure. He kind of seemed skeptical. He uh, kept an eye on me. I got my hands cleaned off in the sink, and I got out my little book that I'd read it down, and I said, I talked to this person at this time. She, she said, oh, I know exactly who she is. He got on the radio. He got in touch with her. He confirmed it. He gave me a piece of paper that said I had the right to the meat. He told me I wasn't able to sell or share the meat under Pennsylvania law, and he shook my hand, and he left. Had I not made that phone call, that could have been a very difficult situation to be in. So please check your state laws. Now, as for guidelines, this has always been my guideline. When I see a deer hit on the highway, I stop. If it looks like it's, if it's not been busted, if it's been busted open, I pretty much no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stop for that animal. If it's extremely bloated, if the stomach is massively expanded, that means that there's been some biological breakdown of activity in the deer, and I generally will not take that deer. I will not make any effort to harvest that deer. If it's warm and it's still, it's not yet had rigor mortis in it, it's as good as something you've shot in, in the woods. If it's stiff, you're making a judgment call, and again, I'm looking for bloat. If it has any off odor to it, I'm not going to harvest it. But other than that, I will. On things, I've heard people talk about, you know, roadkill squirrels and roadkill. I guess if you were in a starvation situation, fine. Um, but, when you butcher a deer, and Kyle's probably learned this for himself now, you hang up a deer and you skin it, and if it was hit, let's say, on the left side, the, the place where the impact was, generally the meat is unusable. It's more bloodshot than a gunshot. You're talking about a four-ton vehicle barreling down the road at 65 miles an hour, impacting some part of this animal and knocking it to the side. And you'll generally lose 25 to 30% of what would normally be usable meat on a deer that's been hit that way. So if a squirrel gets hit by a car, it's probably hamburger inside. It's not worth it. So smaller game, I'm generally not really hip on. Unless it just happened to get, you know, knocked in the head by the edge of the tire and killed or something like that. And then I guess you could pick anything up. And I'm going to use the same rules. Um, is it got any kind of bloat or any kind of off odor or has it been opened up? In those situations, I'm not harvesting it unless I'm in a starvation, I'm going to die otherwise situation. So interesting question. I think we'll wrap up there. Uh, but before we wrap up today, I want to end with another quotation from, uh, the guy that I started the show talking about today, James Kavanaugh. This is also from his book, There Are Men Too Gentle to Live Among Wolves. This is from the, uh, the preface from that book. And it also has really impacted my life and how I view life and how I view my place in the world and in the community around me. I will probably be a searcher, searcher until I die. And hopefully death itself will only be another adventure. To live any other way seems impossible. If anything has changed over the years, and it has, I only feel more confident now about what I wrote then. I am far more aware of the power that guides each of us along the way and provides us with the insights and people we need for our journey. There are indeed men and women too gentle to live among wolves, and only when joined with them will life offer the searcher, step by step, all that is good and beautiful. Life becomes not a confused struggle or a pointless pain, but an evolving mosaic masterpiece of the person we were destined to become. Folks, I can't do much better than that. Take those words to heart. That's a great way to start living a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You can scream, and 
Spend. 